Welcome to another Wheel Nerds podcast. Hi, and welcome to Wheel Nerds. This is episode 51. I'm Chuck. And I'm Todd. We're going to be talking about motorcycles. And crass consumerism. <laughs> I'm ready to consume. Good, good. You know where you should go to consume, don't you? BMW? Well, that's one place you can go. Through your wallet. <laughs> Triumph? Uh, also a good place to consume, but again... Walmart? No. Uh, only if you're a person of Walmart. Well, I do like the stretch Lycra pants I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. the big star in the crotch. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, my mullet's coming in nicely. I see what you mean. Yes, perhaps Walmart is the place. Or you could go to the wheelnerds.com merchandise area. Oh, the wheelnerds.com merchandise area. Don't we have like a cool celebrity endorsement of the wheelnerds area? Yes, we do. Hello, I'm Austin Finn, and so far I've never endorsed any product in my entire life, apart from everything in the Terrorist catalog. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to take this chance to encourage my American cousins, and you all are, even the Mexican ones, to buy some wheelnerds.com stuff. I'm going to go online, I'm going to click, click, bang, and get myself a, um, a realnerds.com sticker. I'm going to stick it on my top box, and I'll be there uh, for the rest of the time until my bike is inevitably consumed in flames. So that's realnerds.com slash merchandise, and youtube.com slash realnerds. Yes, indeed. Go there a lot and consume. Consume. Rampant. Crass consumerism. Consume and consume. Consume. That's a punk rock song from a guy I used to know. Is it? Yeah, he was in a band and everything. Wow. They had Obama in a gas mask on the cover of their album. That's a little strange. If that doesn't say punk rock, I don't know what does. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing good. We took last week off. We We did. We were gone. We were gone. And uh, as someone, I think Jeffrey pointed out very nicely, the the Pace managed to get a show out and we didn't. Yeah, that's a rarity. (laughs) (laughs) Usually when it happens, it's the other way around, but even wheel nerds have real lives. I have a life check. You do? I have a life. No, you don't. I do cool things. Like what? Well, I was in the Zion Name River. one. I, I went hiking. What? I, I was in a river. That's not why you didn't do the show. Sure it is. No, it's not. What'd you do? There, you, you you don't have a life. I don't have a life. I know you and you don't have a life. I was I was getting drunk and playing Nintendo in my underwear. I Enjoy having that in your head for the entire rest of the day, listeners. Oh god, I almost just called them losers instead of listeners. It was like right there in the tip of my tongue. That was close. I'm still in work mode. Don't alienate the listeners, Chuck. Come out of work mode, Chuck. Come <laughs> out of work mode. I'm sorry, I was just on a conference call right before this, so my brain is in all kinds of... You need some help to get you out of work mode. Yes. And I think the person to get you out of work mode is John Ninja. Ninja for Hire. What? John Ninja. Ninja for Hire. Ninja for Hire? Yeah, Roland sent us this ad so that we can hire a ninja. Ninja for Hire. Uh, he suspects it's one of us. I'm John... Well, it can't be one of us. That's clearly John Ninja. Obviously, it's John Ninja. A local ninja for jobs you need done. Yep. Takes all major credit cards. That's nice of him. <laughs> yeah. He's got a Facebook, he's got a YouTube. He's got rules. Yep, he's uh, got rules, and he, he advertises some various jobs he can do. He starts with basic jobs. Birthday parties, can do fun demonstrations for anyone of any age, as well as will dress as full, full ninja. ninja. Yeah, Surprise parties will sneak in, out, and around to surprise your friend or family. Full ninja! Mm. Is there anything like full frontal? 
I don't know. <laughs> Corporate parties will do anything from mock fighting and improve to just standing around or guard the boss. Full ninja. Uh, improv, theatrical shows, mock fake fighting. And, I mean, he's got another level of and ninja you go, jobs. You go to there for ninja jobs. Actual jobs I will do as a ninja. Stealth, espionage, recon. I will sneak in and out of any place I can. He knows above <laughs> that he won't do anything illegal. Or work for people who are doing illegal things. Right, so... He asks permission before he goes to sneak in. Can I sneak in? No. <laughs> ninja mind trick. Sneak, 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 <laughs> sneak, sneak. Ninja training, custom ninja gear, personal security, because that's well, you know, that's what I would like to have at work at my queue. Just have a ninja, just just stand there. Yeah, look, stand here and look menacing. Okay. For thirty bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bigger jobs, he'll clean. Yes, he will clean out your place of junk. <laughs> basic repair jobs. He can fix basic problems around the house or yard. Help you move, come or haul away junk. Actually. I might call him for that. <laughs> ninja haul! Ninja paint! Ninja mow! <laughs> yes, so if you need a ninja, you're good to go. Ninja clean gutters. Specialty jobs. Bachelorette parties. Ninja <laughs> dance for the ladies. Hide you and protect you from someone or something. Mm. Jobs are not a normal request. Call for more details. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of like he's an odd jobs ninja. <laughs> and he's got a picture of himself. I assume that's him in the ninja gear. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, i got to tell you, when I'm looking for somebody to just like haul some shit for me or something like that, I'm be a little tempted to call the ninja. Honey, who are you on the phone with? I'm calling a ninja to take away those old carpets, honey. <laughs> I wonder if he'll show up and haul that stuff away dressed as a ninja. You'll have to ask him that when well, you call. Well, he better. I mean, I'm assuming that's part of the value add. Yeah, ninja haul, yeah. Yeah. I need a ninja haul from my side yard. <laughs> What's out there? A bunch of fucking crap. Haul it away. Silently. <laughs> While you're there, put my neighbor in a sleeper hold. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think you could hire this guy on, and I think this would really help you forget about work. I think it would. <laughs> or at the very least, it would make work better. Ninja, dance for my amusement. Dance, ninja, dance. Hey, we need somebody. We need somebody to help with this. Oh, let me call my ninja. Ninja, please. Ninja speaking. Yo, Ninja, what up? Oh, nothing. Just ninjing. <laughs> hey, Ninja, can you be over here soon? Actually, I'm already behind you. Whoa! <laughs> no, this this isn't us, Roland. But we will go ahead and put a link up because I think it's kind of a cool service. Yeah, why not? And uh, Do you need a Ninja to do odd jobs? Here's your Ninja. Yep, just no illegal activities. You know, since we're doing classifieds, let's just jump into those, huh? Okay. Well, let's see what we got. Okay, our first ad is a super custom cafe racer. Okay, it's a 1979 KZ400 custom for $10,000. Seriously, it's custom. Hmm. You know, I'm looking at this. <laughs> Let me tell you what I see. It's custom. I see that it has a, a black rim in the front. Black custom rim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got uh, the cowling missing from the rear subframe. That's a custom touch. And a seat which appears to be strapped on with a leather strap. Customly. And it's got a pair of $25 dirt bike bars and one mirror. Well, that's custom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a caf- it's a custom cafe racer, Todd. Yes, it's a custom cafe racer. Oh, and it has one white wall tire. Yep. Not two white wall tires. The, the rear white wall, well, that's all you need. Well, when it has one, it's more custom, isn't it? It is. For $9,959. for a bike that was probably made about the time I was born. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not getting the custom, I gotta tell you. No, not I mean, the, like, the like, white wall is not speaking to you? Super Custom Cafe Racer is missing shit. <laughs> super Missing Shit Cafe Racer. Seriously, it's it's custom. <laughs> this thing this thing to me says this is a survival bike. Like this is this is the bike you buy super cheap. 
and just like put the absolute minimum amount of money into to make the fucking thing run. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, next up we've got an R6. Oh, good. The 2007 R6 for $3,000. Mm-hmm. It is the R6 R Charcoal Navy. Needs engine. Found one for $1,000. Oh. It steals with 7XXX. Wait, wait, wait. Please. Stop, stop. Stop, back up. Yeah. Wait, what did you say? Uh, I said it's an R6 Charcoal Gray. After that. Uh, needs engine. Uh, yeah, needs engine. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's it's a fixer-upper. So it's a three... Th- <laughs> it's an R6, Todd. It's a, no, it's not. It's a 2000 R6. It's an R6 frame and wheels. <laughs> it's an R6 conversation piece. It just it just needs a motor. You could get one for a grand, you know. Oh. For it's got 7000 miles on the on the motors at steels. So for $4000, I could have a 2007 R6 uh-huh. with 7000 miles on it that's in a million fucking pieces. Uh-huh. What? It's custom. Apparently, it's so custom it didn't have an engine. You know, I know they're all about taking weight off of the customs, but this is getting a little ridiculous. You know, you're gonna go, you're gonna call this guy up and be like, you know, your bike doesn't have an engine. It does too. <laughs> your bike's dead. It's not. It's resting. <laughs> it's a sleepy bike. It's pining for the fjords. <laughs> your bike is no more. <laughs> Shuffled off the mortar coil and joined the blue choir invisible. This is an XR6. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> uh, what the hell? How about this one? Uh, this one's got a motor. It's a uh, dirt bike for sale. Need gone ASAP. Okay. Yep. Must come to me in Miramar. It worked fine, but the throttle cable broke, so I just left it alone. It will not start without throttle. No brakes. Selling as is. It has four gears. I don't know if that's what it came with. 20, 40 miles an hour. Asking for... Only $80, my price is firm. Don't call trying to lower my price. You will be ganged up on. What? Do not call if you don't have cash in hand. What? 80 bucks. Dirt bike, pocket bike, mini bike, 50cc, 100cc, 150cc, Yamaha, Kawasaki, and any other tags I can throw in there. Wow, that's, uh, don't come if you don't have cash in hand. And don't try lower it. You'll be ganged up on. I... By a ninja. Don't have cash in... That's what I'll do. I will hire John Ninja to come with me. (laughs) Help lower the price. Yes, lower the price. No, I'll use my ninja. Okay. <laughs> hey, you know what the main problem I'm seeing with this one is? Is what if all you have is a hundred? The guy doesn't have a twenty. Um, maybe may- maybe he'll have a throttle cable he can throw in. Yeah, can you throw in a throttle cable for twenty bucks? Yeah, you know what this bike says to me? Not stolen. That it also says to me the guy that had my apartment before me left it behind. Mmm, could be that too. Which is technically not stolen. Technically not. You're correct. <laughs> he doesn't mention the title. No, so it could be it could be perfectly legal. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. This this has a this has an abandoned bike kind I, of I found this in my parking spot and please someone move it. I'm pretty sure that scooter I bought came about that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to I went to the DMV and it was not stolen. Not stolen? Oh there you go. It's... I paid a princely sum to insure the stupid thing compared to what I paid for it, but he doesn't know what CC it is. It worked fine, but the throttle cable broke. There's a story behind this. There is so many questions <laughs> that this this comes up to. More questions than there are answers in this ad. And he's just looking for enough money to take his girl out to dinner. Well, he's probably probably he needs to get rid of it before she'll go out to dinner with him. <laughs> hey, you want to go out to dinner? Get rid of that thing right now! <laughs> Okay. Okay, everything you still have that. We'll go to the Red Lobster. <laughs> Ooh, fancy. <laughs> Speaking of fancy bikes for sale, 
Ooh, fancy bikes for sale. It's a, whoa, uh, that bike's ass has uh, got went slower than the front, and now it's all stretched. This is the Twin Tracks by the German Motorcycle Authority. Now, I got, I'm going to apologize right here. Let's just stop real quick. I'm going to apologize to everyone who has sent these to us so far, because mm -hmm. I forgot to write all their names down. Mm -hmm. That's my bad. So you're saying these ads were not stolen? So anyways, the, back to this uh, the German Motorcycle Authority uh, drag bike, I guess. I can only assume it would be a drag bike, because it makes no sense as anything else. It's, it has dual Harley-Davidson uh, Evolution engines uh -huh. uh, for a total of 2.7 liters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is stretched out the hell. Although information is scarce, I think it's safe to guess it's inspired by a drag racing motorcycle. Many Gee, you think? <laughs> use a twin-engine setup with a long center beam, allowing the riders to lay almost flat. Because that's comfortable. <laughs> uh, minimal fairings all feel like they were pulled from a current year KTM. Wait, here's my favorite bit. And the titanium color choice gives the bike an ethereal, almost futuristic feel. No, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the stuff over on the side of this website, and uh, I have to tell you something. Leon Art, watch it. Why I is it all blinking? That this is a hipster site. <laughs> I, it's all blinking. Yeah, it's, it's hipster, hipstermotorcycles.com.org. Ah. German motorcycle authority sites all in German, so. Well, that makes a perverse amount of sense, doesn't it? How much do you think this is uh, going to go for? I don't know. I don't think there's enough money in the world to make me buy it. It's, uh, it's, it's really ugly. Yeah. And not symmetrical. Nope. <laughs> and also really ugly. But, you know, I'm looking at that color, and it does feel sort of ethereal and futuristic. Don't make me smack you. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go find my tight jeans. Speaking of real bikes, though. Real I, bikes. I went to ride some uh, bikes this weekend. Did you? I did. Okay. I rode a Triumph Sprint. Mm -hmm. Hated it. Really? Okay. Bad seating position? Bad yeah. seating position. As soon as okay. I got on the bike, I started thinking about ways that I could make my legs not cramp. Okay. Which is weird because Claire went with me. Mm -hmm. Took a picture of me on the front and a picture of me on the sprint. Mm -hmm. And my p position doesn't look that different. Hmm. Interesting. And I find the Thruxton to be incredibly scrunched up. Yeah, well, you're taller than me. But the, I, I don't know so in the Thruxton. You know what it is? I don't think of the Thruxton as a touring bike. Yeah, I think that could be it right there. You know, with the sprint, I'm like, okay, if I'm on this for two days... How am I going to feel? Right. And I'm like, I'm not going to feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm all asking the guy, does it have highway pegs? And no, he can't do that. Well, can I lower the pegs? I don't know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Shit. So the other bikes I rode was a uh, Tiger 800XC again. Okay. Like Claire's, yeah. Um, I rode that one again because I, I did it back-to-back -back with an F800GS. Okay. Are they similar as everyone says? No. Really? They're very similar power. Okay. Very similar, I imagine, acceleration. I think the F800 is going to beat it out on top speed. Mm -hmm. But the big thing is you're on the 800GS... It feels like a big dirt bike. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the noise, the mm -hmm. just the it, really just the noise. Yeah. The posture and everything of the bike are pretty identical. Mm -hmm. Your your handlebars, just BMW's got the weird controls with the left yep. right turn signal. The honk to cancel turn signals. Yeah, familiar yeah, yeah, with those. Yeah, yeah. I need to cancel. <laughs> everything feels pretty similar except for the sound of the bike, mm -hmm. which you know is a big part of the subjective experience of the bike. Sure. And the GS sounds like a dirt bike, mm -hmm. and the Triumph sounds English. Mm. I don't know whether those are good or bad things. For me, I think uh, it's the English is the good thing. Okay. So i got to ask you something. Have you ridden a Versus yet? I haven't. I think you should. Because everyone who likes that posture and rides the Versus and is looking for a street bike mm -hmm. buys a Versus. See, I, I've been told I, can, I should either look at a Versus mm -hmm. or I should look at a Multi. Because mm. the one thing, Claire 
went with me on the demo ride. Yep. And he was saying, you know, not to say anything about you specifically, but I think you want a bike that will go fast, fast. And the Balti Strat does that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't, the, the GS and the XC were very comparable bikes. One mm -hmm. seems dirt oriented mm -hmm. and the other one seems more street oriented than mm -hmm. the other. So, yep. you know, it kind of depends where you are. Yep. They were both fun bikes to ride. I, I had a blast with them. Cool. I still haven't seen an, an Exploder in person yet. Mm -hmm. When I got there to BMW, they were still in crates. Oh, wow. And one was sold. <laughs> Sight unseen. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we just got to put it together for the guy. Okay. Do you want to sell another one? Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> you should put it together. And I guess those for out the door are going for like 16 17 yeah. Well, what do you think a Multistrata goes for? Yeah, but it's a Ducati. Italian girls fall from the sky. Uh-huh. They throw panties at you. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was one of the side effects of it. What, what if one of them hits you in the eyes? The panties? Yeah. That doesn't hurt. You never had that happen to you? No. No? No, no girls have ever thrown panties at me. That's a really sad story. I know. <laughs> My life is hollow and empty. Hey, well, you know, fortunately for us, we have a special guest this week whose life is not at all hollow or empty. No, not a bit of it. We have got Austin Vince on the show tonight. Now, I'm going to warn all you listeners, Austin talk to us from merry old England, so the connection is not always the best, but we think you'll enjoy it. It's anyway. totally worth listening to. Okay, so we're on with Austin Vince, who I guess is some guy that rides a motorcycle or something around the block, something something like that, right, Austin? Yeah, yeah, I'm, well, I, I presume all of your guests are motorcycle related, aren't they? Most, most of them. Most of them, yeah, yeah. We're still working on trying to get, like, porn stars to be on the show. Yeah, I'm sure if you pay them, they will. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the problem. There's the problem. Thanks for being <laughs> on for free. <laughs> so uh, Austin is the guy behind Mondo Enduro. You know, back in the 90s, Austin and a bunch of his friends got on a bunch of little crappy bikes and went around the world on them and produced a movie and book, or a TV series and book. I love this series because it just makes it look so painful. Oh, no. <laughs> he's talking to us from England right now, so he's seven hours in the future from us. That's right. This is London calling. This is London calling. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> let's start by talking about Mondo Enduro, Austin. What gave you guys the idea to, hey, let's get some little junky bikes and just ride around the world? How drunk were you guys? Good question. <laughs> I was I was a teetotal back then. I think that was my calling card. I was 29 and I'd never been drunk. Really? And so five was far beer from being uh, just a brilliant guy in a pub. The main thing is really that, like any normal person, we'd always wanted to do some kind of big, exciting trip. But Mono Enduro was extremely fortunate in that us as a group of guys in their late 20s with no commitments, no mortgages, no, um, no uh, kids or family or anything like that, he just happens to be having that idea that pretty much everyone has eventually. At the time, the Soviet Union was opening up its borders. So for years, if you were, certainly if you were European and you wanted to do a big trip, you were almost guaranteed to be locked into doing basically London to Cape Town by one route or another. That's become, that was the, the entry level right of passage. Suddenly in the early 90s, when we, when we happened to be thinking, and we liked to do a lot of like, little trips to fun, suddenly we realized that we could head east. And... We did a big trip around Eastern Europe in 1991, immediately after the Berlin Wall had come down, and it was and it was mind blowing. And I, you know, I'd been to India and Egypt, and Australia, and America, and you know, I'd been to quite a few bunky places, and I'd never seen anything like it. And it was only a day's travel from, from London, and, this, and Eastern Europe was just locked in time. It was, it was basically 1937. 
was so, so amazing. So then we were talking about doing a big trip to Cape Town, and then somebody sort of said, hey, why don't we see if we can get across Russia? Maybe that would be allowed now. Maybe that's possible, because, of course, back in the day, it was illegal to drive your own vehicle in, in, in Soviet Union. And we made a few phone calls, and um, obviously it was before the internet, and we discovered that it probably was going to be possible to drive into Russia. And that's where it was born. And then we realized that we were going to drive across Russia to, to, to Japan, probably. And once we were in Japan, we realized there was more effort to ship the bikes back to England than it was to ship them to Anchorage. So, um, so we thought, yeah, let's you know, send the bikes to Anchorage, and then there's a straight shot to Chile. And then we realized that from you know, Buenos Aires or, or Santiago in Chile, it would be far, far easier to ship the bikes across South Africa and ride back over land than it would to ship the bikes back to England and South America. So then we quickly came up with this idea of trying to do the three, you know, the, the three big land masses on the earth one after another, because we knew that no one had ever done that before because of the Soviet Union thing, mm-hmm. and we called it Mondo Endura. Mm. So you're saying the, uh, the the route was picked because you guys were lazy. That's kind of what I heard. <laughs> exactly. we, didn't, we couldn't be bothered. To, to, well, we were too stingy and poor to pay for the heavy shipping costs, you see. So um, we tried to drive our way back <laughs> as much as possible. So this was like 95, 96. It- the amazing thing is that eight of us met up in a, in a pub in a town called Nottingham in the middle of England. And it was basically the only eight people that I knew who had motorbike licenses. I wasn't part of a club or a gang or a community at all. Like, I mean, like, all of us motorcyclists know what it's like to be outsiders, but certainly at work, none of my colleagues rode motorcycles, none of my family did, apart from my brother. And so I and my brother gathered together the eight people that we knew who, <laughs> who had motorbike licenses. I think, and that was in December 1992. Mm. Uh, in other words, sort of just after, you know, not that long after we'd done the European trip. And incredibly, we set a date that night in, in a very, very grown-up way. I thought it was quite out of character. We, um, we agreed that we would leave in April 95 and hit the, the, the Russian summer. And amazingly, two and a half years later, on, on, in April 1995, of those eight people, seven of us were there on the bikes, leaving. Nice. Yeah, I can't believe it. Because you, you, you know what you, you think like. Everyone always drops out, don't they? You can't get seven people to go to pizza at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was um, ex- extremely fortuitous. I think a lot of effort was, was put by all of us in those two and a half years. So we just kept talking about it. The minute, the minute we'd come up with this idea that we were going to mess around the world like that, we made the mistake of telling quite a few of our friends and our family and, of course, girlfriends to try and impress them. Once we'd done that, we were stuck. You know, we had, we had to go ahead with it. Oh, yeah. When you're watching Mondo Enduro, it's really easy to forget that this takes place in the mid-90s because mm-hmm. they're using, like, Super 8 cameras. Hmm. So it looks like they're riding around in the 60s or the 70s. Well, didn't you hear the thing about the budget earlier? Yeah, the budget is, I guess, like a, a big driver for everything they did. Oh, but fellas, you're wrong. You seem to be suggesting that shooting on Super 8 was a, a, a cost-cutting device. <laughs> how, how did that work out? The role of Super 8, back then, I converted to dollars for you. And I'll do it in today's prices. The role of Super 8 is $30 for three, a three-minute roll of film. Wow. Uh, how much okay. mini-DV, a one-hour mini-DV cassette cost? You know, $4. The Super 8 was an artistic um, step. I was, I was obsessed with Super 8, and I'd been filming um, everything, every film I'd ever made up until they have been on Super 8. Uh, and it was a huge extravagance. We, we took something like about $400 worth of Super with us, which was only an hour. 
an hour or two like that. It was, it was quite controversial, actually, to the rest of the team. Sort of as an indulgence to me, as the cameraman. It looks amazing. We've got a shoot on Super 8, you know, all the sunsets, the flowers, all that sort of stuff. There's a shot in Wonder Enduro in Turkmenistan of a sunset, an embankment, with the bikes going past at the sunset. And I remember when I filmed it, even though, of course, with, with film, you can't see what you've just filmed, can you? Mm. We, had send, we had to send the Super 8 cassettes, the cartridges, to Japan to get processed. <laughs> and then in Japan, they were sent back to a friend of mine in England who would watch them. And then he would write a paper letter to an embassy in Russia with a report of how the shots had come out. <laughs> and, it, and it took, uh, that process took about three months. And But then, of course, I never got to see it. He just described the shot. And he said, and he would say, oh yeah, that, that bit with the flowers in the market, that worked well. The sunset with the truck going past, that was that was excellent. More that, please. You know, so... Um, it was. Yeah, it wasn't a huge indulgence by the rest of the team to allow me to to shoot on Super Eight. So I'm curious then, at the part of Mondo where you guys are stuck under a bridge in Eastern Russia, walking around in your underwear and it's raining, <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, I, of course, I was, I saw Mondo in Europe for the first time in about five years last week in Arizona when I was there at the uh, Travel Film Festival, and I was shocked about how much of it I'd forgotten had ever been <laughs> happened. And I remember that that moment that was I mean that was a particularly awful day or the end the end of a particularly awful two days when we were just so completely utterly out of our head and exhausted and we knew that we were in a place that no no English man had ever been you know as an absolute fact there was no Lonely Planet guide or website or or guidebook that featured any any of those places and we kind of like plowed on with rosy cheek, sandal wearing, you know, uh, jolly hockey sticks enthusiasm until we were literally overwhelmed by the kind of Siberian sludge. And it was, uh, and, and it was utterly depressing. Now, of course, I look back on it and, uh, and think nothing of it. And you could go there now, you know, with a dirt bike with some lovely tires on it, and you could just, you know, you just wheel through that section. But we were complete Nazis. I mean, totally, totally unprepared. And, uh, and under-equipped, over-equipped, and utterly, utterly incompetent. <laughs> that should be the tagline for the movie. Yeah. For me, that one scene really stands out in contrast to, you know, Long Way Round, mm-hmm. where those those guys had, like, they had support, they had chase cars, they had, you know, guides. More mm-hmm. important, being paid to do it. And they're being paid to do it. You look at the Mondo yeah, crew, they look like I mean, they were in yeah, a concentration yeah. camp at that point. Yeah, it's strange. And, of course... You might as well ask the question, who do you think enjoyed their trip more? Us or the famous celebrities on Long Way Around? Hmm. On that day? <laughs> <laughs> on, on, yeah, on, taken as a whole. <laughs> yeah, right. Hmm. I mean, the one guy that was wrapped up in the sleeping bag, I wasn't sure he was still alive. <laughs> that, that, was, that was awful, because just when we thought it had got really bad, suddenly he goes down with a fever. And then there was this whole thing about encephalitis D. Uh, you know this disease you get from the from the pine tree ticks. Oh. <laughs> I've done a medical course. I knew too much actually, and um, before we left. But but there's a there's only one serious illness that can hit you in Siberia, in that temperate taiga, um, silver birch and pine forest and belt. Uh, and that is this this tick that lives in the trees, it falls out of the trees, gets into humans and animals and stuff. Uh, and, it, uh, and it's not like a leech or something that sucks you dry, but it gives you this encephalitis B virus, which is essentially fatal or extremely serious. So suddenly we're in the middle of the pine forest and then Gerald gets sick. 
and like it wasn't just like oh, I don't feel well it was like really really definitely ill and I remember thinking this is it we've totally bitten off more than we can chew, chew. no one knows where we are and now this guy's got encephalitis B yeah, we're in major trouble here <laughs> and so, luckily, it was just a cult. <laughs> oh, man. That, that would have been like when Austin waited for everyone to go sleep and he would just get on the train. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was back in the day. This was, when, this was when the notion of a cell phone was a neat new idea and they were, you know, the size of a side case. The notion of everything sounded like it was a neat new idea about the time they did this. Yeah, that's, that was... It was incredibly... Um, uh, but it wasn't frustrating because you just didn't you just didn't make any attempt to contact the outside world. Sure. So it meant actually that once we got into Georgia, Turkey, uh, and entered the former Soviet Union for the next three months, our families only heard from us like twice. And, and when you went when you wanted to phone Europe, you had to go to a, a telephone change and book the call. And then they had this big room with like little miniature telephone boxes. Uh, telephone booths, that's what you call them, telephone booths all around the periphery of the hall. And you sit there on a central bench, like me in a doctor's waiting room. And we realized when we first did this that there was a, a voice which shouts out over the tannoy your name and the place that you were calling or the number that you were calling, all in Russian. And so as we would sit in there and all these people, uh, all this crackly, Dalek sounding voices coming out over the, over the rubbish tannoy, my brother and I realized that we had no idea when it was our turn. And we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know which box to go to, nor would we know when it, you know if they were even speaking to us. So after a natural British middle class reservedness, we were too embarrassed to go and pester the middle aged crones around the, the, the phone off. We were too embarrassed to pester them, so we um, just sat there in the hopes somebody might come over and take pity on us. But they never did. So we sat there for an hour and a half, which is a long time, you know, without any magazines or anything. And then we went over to the woman, uh, you know, have you got our call? Have you booked our call to England yet, to our m mother and father? And, and you speak through a tiny hatch the size of a, a, a cup, and it's like trying to get into some a speakeasy, that kind of sensation, and the, the hatch is at waist height. Mm -hmm. So this immediate humbling moment when you're on your knees, talking to this middle-aged woman through this tiny hole, and she just shouts back, she, she just shoots out in Russian, like, why are, you, why are you wasting my time? You know, I got the call, you never even bloody came to the phone, you goop. You know? <laughs> so, of course, in mind, we were trying to explain that we just didn't, didn't know it was our turn. But instead of us, her being motherly and like, oh, don't worry, I'll look after you, she just thought we were losers. <laughs> and, and it then took another hour after that with a bit more pestering to get connected. So that whole story is two and a half hours. And then we have to find the place. There's only one building in the entire city where you can do this. And of course, it's got no signs on the outside or anything. So that takes an hour and a half of asking questions and giving people money and children, you know, leading you down alleyway. And eventually you, you, you so it's a two and a half hour to three hour process to get through to England, you know, to say we're okay. And but, it, but it meant that we, the sense of isolation that we felt, we were very lucky because you can't feel that nowadays in Russia. There was no way that we went, but now you haven't got full mobile signal. One of the things I've always kind of wondered about Mondo Enduro is, was the group size too large with that many guys going, going across? Did it, did it feel like it slowed you down, or was it too much trouble, or was it just right? It was all of those things. It was too large. If you're in a hurry, sometimes it's likely to get a puncture, sometimes it's likely to break down, and so on. It, it seemed like in the book you guys were getting separated all the time. Yeah, yeah totally. We had very poor discipline. And, well, eventually we sorted it out, but it took months to work out our routine. 
And if you have anyone in the group, I won't, I won't say who they were, <laughs> if you've got anyone in the group who just drives off and doesn't wait at, at junctions or, you know, or something like that to, for the rest of the group to catch up, because we would always ride as a seven. We never, we never rode in two separate groups or, or split up at all. We rode as a seven the whole time. If somebody does just drive off and they've got the puncture repair kit, and you can and they're in the front. You can imagine what could happen next. Of all things that might befall a transnational motorcycle trip, it's going to be the puncture. So now that guy's merrily, you know, burning his way across Kazakhstan, just endlessly separating himself from you. So the good side of it was that uh, the amount of clobber that you need to execute this kind of like long distance motorcycle thing, you know, we could have a, a whole radio show interview just about that. But there's there's probably a finite list of certain things that you really have got to have, have on you. Tool kit, puncture repair kit, a pump, so on and so forth, you know, some kind of catering equipment, some kind of cooking pot and all that stuff. And so all of that stuff was spread seven ways. That was useful. But what we did was that we, we just piled up mad, ridiculous equipment and then and, and took it. So we, what we should have done is all been carrying a seventh of what a normal person would carry if they were on their own. Instead, we carried what a normal person would carry on their own, each of us. So we had seven times as much, you know, team equipment as we needed. So in, including a four-pound club hammer. Imagine a massive steel hammer as a mouth. Oh, okay. Yeah, four-pound sledge. We were carrying a four-pound sledge all the way across Siberia through this little gap and everything. Well, you people, know, Russians are kind of stubborn. Oh, that's how they yeah. fix bikes over there. <laughs> we carried that because we didn't know that there was such a thing as a chain-breaking tool. So we <laughs> could, you could separate links on a chain which by smashing them out with the hammer and the center punch. We had no idea there was a little thing made by Motion Pro who we'd never heard of. A little thing that you could place over the chain and then, you know, screw the thing in and it drives the pin out and all that stuff. Yeah, but that was, we had a fire extinguisher, quite a big one as well. Yeah, and we thought that was going to, like, save the day when a bike, you know, started having an electrical fire. Well, you know, yeah, you put three, four gallons of gas in one of those things, they, they explode. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it in movies. <laughs> Countless yeah. movies. There definitely seems to be a lot of really good stories around. We had the wrong gear, and so we sort of we sort of bodged it together using, insert a few humorous things here. <laughs> but there was a lot of that as well. But we, we, we didn't know. None of us, the furthest any of us had ever motorcycled was, was around Eastern Europe, and that was a 3,000-mile trip, which obviously by North American standards is farcically short. But it was about, you know, 14 countries or something like that. But that was only three weeks. And in that time, we were on tarmac the whole time. We weren't really camping. We were in even in Eastern Europe. We were still in Europe, you know. So we just, when we set off on the Euro, it was, I mean, it's unbelievable the things that we, that we didn't take with us and the things that we didn't know how to do. And we made no attempt to know how to do them. When my rear wheel bearings collapsed, or Clive's, Clive's rear wheel bearings collapsed in Siberia, and I was driving along behind him, and his whole back wheel started wobbling, uh, and then wobbling madly, like it was made of jelly. And I'd never seen that in my life. I didn't know what was happening. And we stopped and took the axle out. We knew how to do that. And um, all of these ball bearings and bits of steel now. And I remember thinking, what, what is that? What is that stuff in there? And why is it all in little bits? I mean, and I remember thinking that's the end of the trip. I thought it was a specialist Suzuki part. I'd never seen a, um, a seal bearing in my life. And <laughs> I'd certainly never heard of one. You know, and I didn't realise that they wore out. So I thought, that's the, end, that's the end of modern Europe at this point. And I remember we were making inquiries with locals about, is there a railway station near here? And this bike's going back to England. <laughs> and I, I did, you know, now I, I mean, I've got them on me. I just, I just rode 
to the place where I'm doing this interview. I just rode here tonight, and I've got I've got bearings on me on my bike permanently. You know, it's just it was just such a it was a, a time of colossal naivety. But of course, all the better for it. Well, if we were to do like around the world today, should we be riding BMW 1200GSs or uh, Triumph 1200 Explorers? That's some kind of joke. Yes. <laughs> this is what we call in America opening the door. What does that mean? Is that some kind of reference to anal sex? <laughs> no, that that's opening the, the starfish. All oh, right. Opening the rusty sheriff's bag. Yes. <laughs> Going for the pucker punch. <laughs> no, actually, what we kind of want to talk about is, you know, the adventure market now, everyone's coming out with a 1200 adventure bike. Ride, ride this around the world. Ride this up and down. Ride this to your local Starbucks. Do they have Starbucks there? Yeah, totally. But as, like in America, friends don't let friends drink to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so at Starbucks in England, do they just serve tea? or Do, do they drink no, coffee in England? You get the privilege of uh, standing in line for 45 minutes and then having a, seven, a $7 cup of coffee that tastes exactly the same as the one you could have made at home. Is it true that so many uh, overlanders are English because the food there is so bad? This interview's over. Chinbeards! <laughs> <laughs> Chin beards are over. <laughs> the bikes are over. <laughs> yeah, now uh, you're quite wrong. Think about America, American versus British food. Is that in America you've mastered the breakfast superbly, and a few set piece formulae like the hot dog and the hamburger. But the mistake you've made is to try and eat as many of them as you possibly can. So you've mushrooms to 25 stone, or as you would say, 300 pounds. In Britain, we don't really have an amazing catalogue of so-called British food, but we're very good at mimicking everybody else's. Uh, there's a common expression that if you want... The, the, the city in the world that's got the best restaurants in it is without a doubt London. I mean, absolutely no question about it, because not because it's filled with British restaurants, but because it's filled with a restaurant of every other nation in the world, at least one. And, of course, it's enough of the Indian food that we have out here, which is so spectacular. I have quite a few British friends, and uh, they're all big on the Indian food. It's such a joy. And they've all gotten a little chubby since they moved to America. It's kind of funny. It's what we do here. Oh, yeah. I put on um, seven pounds in five weeks. That's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I put on. Wow, seven you pounds. must be European. I put on seven pounds yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but no, let, let's talk about the, the big adventure bikes because you guys were on these. What were you guys on? Like three. RD yeah, everyone says you can get RD350s, what you call dual sport. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it seems like the entry level is your 800cc, and the flagships are the 1200ccs with the, the big brushed aluminum Turtec cans, the Zegas. Yeah. You know, there's there's a, Turtec has a catalog bigger than, you know, two Bibles. Oh, I know, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Turtec catalog. I mean, there's, you know, there's loads of amazing stuff in there. Yeah, like uh, toilet really, paper holders. Well, bad words about Turtec, especially Turtec USA. I think they're doing a great job. But they I mean, I, I personally find myself isolated because of my opinion on this giant so-called adventure bike thing. Well, what's like, your opinion, Austin? That's what we want. We want to hear I, your opinion. You don't get trouble. From where I'm standing, and I, I'm standing actually in a place of considerable vantage, because I'm one of the handful of people who spends a lot of time in America immersed in the adventure motorcycle community, and most definitely in Britain, I'm up my neck in the adventure motorcycle community. It's all I, it's all I do all day. 
you know, do presentations and talks and lectures and go to trade fairs and stuff like that with all those kind of people. And well, really, actually, since uh, Modern Enduro in '95, in when, when that appeared on television on, on Discovery Europe in '97, and then with the publication of Chris Scott's legendary Adventure Motorcycle Handbook, we've had this adventure, you know, adventure motorcycle explosion. What's clearly happened is if, you, if, you, if we could go back in time and, and hang around on a street corner in, in uh, 1990, a certain kind of person, invariably male, who's uh, wanting to get themselves an instant identity, that kind of person back in the 90s would go and buy a Harley. Absolutely on, on the money, especially in Britain. In America, riding a Harley isn't quite as ridiculous as it is in the UK, because our roads aren't, you know, just aren't really set up for it. But of course they are in America. So those kind of people are now not by Harley's. Harley dealerships are closing in the UK. And they've realized that there's a new gimmick, there's a new fad, and it's called adventure motor marketing. But the same thinking is true as the Harley, and that is big bike equals big man. If you actually want a motorcycle around the world and do something slightly interesting or unusual while you're about it, you will be on the smallest bike you can physically lay your hands on, frankly. Certainly the smallest bike that you'll pride will allow you to ride. <laughs> if you want to um, visit extreme branches of Starbucks and uh, maybe do a couple of gravel roads and then get some stickers and then spend 800 hours blogging about it on ADB Rider, the GS1200 awaits you. It's as simple as that. <laughs> There's your market. That's, that's, that's the new marketing catalog. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, and there's another layer to this as well, is that if you actually sat down like a, an economist and did the math and did the research and got the facts and ploughed through all of the blogs and the lists of who's actually doing what, the people who are doing the cutting-edge trips in the, in the actual, dare I say, in the elite of the adventure motorcycle community, are, nobody's riding anything in a 500. I mean, look at someone like Lois Price as well. She's just done London to Cape Town on a 250, uh, Alaska to the bottom of Shawaya on a 2250. Not, not because she's um, small or something like that, but because those are the bikes that go anywhere. The whole point is, is that adventure motorcycling is without a doubt, whether you like it or not, it means you are not in your comfort zone. And it doesn't mean that means you've got no cell phone coverage or you're like more than eight inches from uh, a Dairy Queen. It means that you are in a continent, in a country that you're not used to. You're in a country and an environment where they don't speak your language. You're in a country and an environment where they don't share your faith. That's adventure motorcycling. Because if you're not in those funny places, you're just motorcycling. We've had a word for that for the last hundred years. If you want to get the adventure motorcycle badge or whatever, or if you want to claim some bragging rights, which I think all humans want to do, that's why we you know, do all this stuff. That's not, yeah, you know, the skydiving and whatever. If you want to, if you want to do something that will actually change your life and will make you into one hopes a better person because of the experience, it's not going to happen in America or Europe or Australia or or South Africa. It's going to happen in a place where the police aren't the good guy. But that's the vision motorcycle. How has Mondo changed you? What would that do for your life? I mean, it's changed your career. It seems. Well, yes and no. I mean, I've been a math teacher all my life, really. I took, I took a year off to do Modern Enduro, mm -hmm. and then I year, another year off to do Terra Circa in 2001. It's changed my life enormously, I think, because of just the sheer incredible good luck of the route that we took and us being the first people to ever get to Magadan on the so-called Road of Bones. No one had heard of Magadan, including us, when we got there. 
<laughs> Did you plant an English flag and claim it for the Queen? No, 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 not at all. But my, my point is, being, when, we, when we were going across Siberia, we were heading for Vladivostok, which is 1,500 miles to the south of Magadan. And, and we met somebody who said, oh, there's this place in the far northeast of Russia, which is inaccessible by road. It used to be a closed prison town, accessible only by plane or boat for the last 80 years. No Soviet had ever been there unless they were a guard or, or an inmate in a, in a prison camp. So that's why no one ever talked about it as a destination. Not like if you, if you lived in America and you said, oh, I'm going to drive to Anchorage. No one would say, oh my God, you know, what are you going to do there? Because Anchorage is a normal town. But the Russian or the Soviet version of Anchorage on the other side of the base is this place Magadan. So when we left in England, we'd never heard of it. No one had. And we, but everyone had heard of Vladivostok because that's the end of the Trans-Siberian Railway. It's you know, quite famous. And um, we met this guy uh, and he said, you can, there's uh, Alaskan Airlines as part of this new spirit of detente. I've started this revolutionary flight from a, a place called Khabarovsk, which is basically on the Chinese-Russian border. This flight goes from Khabarovsk to Magadan, to Anchorage, to Seattle. Suddenly that meant that Magadan, after being cut from the outside world, he cut a car from Russia for the last 70 years. Suddenly you could fly there, from there to Anchorage. It's unheard of. So when we heard this, we changed our route, and when we got to the town of Skobrodino in kind of like eastern Siberia, we, we turned left, which meant north, uh, and drove north for, uh, for about 1,800 miles until we got to the, luckily, until we got to Space Magadan, and uh, it took, took like two months. Uh, because no one had done it before, you couldn't even ask the locals if it was possible, because none of them had done it either. Um, and it was exciting, yeah, really exciting. I can't remember what the question was. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> so Mother Jura, of course, changed my life, because even uh, just, just being in the former Soviet Union in 1995 and, and traversing it, you know, under your own steam with no one else to hold your hand apart from your teammate, just that experience in itself, intense, you know, absolutely exciting and you know, frustrating sometimes. But um, we knew, I and mean, we all knew this was the, the, the most far out, wacky place we've ever been in our lives. And not wacky because of the jungles or the chasms or the mountains or the waterfalls, but wacky because of the humans and what the humans had done. And it was so weird to be surrounded 11,000 miles from London by white people who looked exactly like the people we'd left behind in England, but yet were utterly foreign. Yet, at the same time, weren't utterly foreign. They were incredibly engaging and warm. And it was an amazingly confusing experience. Which meant that when we arrived in Anchorage, finally, on the Air Alaska flight, with the, actually, Air Alaska wouldn't take the motorbike in the, in the, in the plane. But Aeroflot had set up a, a, a kind of slightly crappy competing surface. And, <laughs> I've uh, never heard that about Aeroflot. And so Aeroflot let you just go out onto the runway with the motorbikes and just jam them. If you could squash them into the holes with the suitcases, then they, you gave some money to them, and, and that was it. You were on. You know, so, <laughs> so, they push in the bike, they push in the yeah. horse, somebody had a goat. <laughs> Yeah, we, we managed to get the bar uh, flown from Magadan to Anchorage. And when we got the plane in Anchorage, it was just like we'd been let out, let out of prison. But the huge difference between adventure motorcycling and adventuring in the traditional sense is that if you buy an adventure mag in your local branch, REI or whatever it is, and you uh, you go and get your, your cascade designs, thermarest and seal line dry bag, you're probably going to do something that's human power. You're probably going to go to a remote place. Uh, you might climb a mountain, you might be walking across a glacier, you might be um, canoeing down the inside pass, something like that. All of that counts as absolutely uh, class A, 24 carat, copper bottom adventure activity. 
But adventure motorcycling isn't about going to remote places. It's about going to places where people live. But they're places that you're not used to. And they're unusual and strange and they can be unnerving. Especially if culturally it's a place that isn't very sympathetic to where you come from. I.e. if you're American or British or European. So adventure motorcycling is, is an experience that unlike traditional outward bound adventure is all about not getting away from humans but getting up close to humans. But they're, they're, they're just the wrong humans. They're the ones that you're not used to. The ones with, with the funny customs who treat their women differently, who eat different kinds of food, who yeah. have a different approach to, you know, to everything. And they drink tea and eat things called biscuits and warm <laughs> beer. You're not getting anywhere. If you really think that coming to Britain is going to be an adventure motorcycle experience, you need to think again. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, of course, it's an incredibly predictable experience. The whole point of being that adventure motorcycling is open to anybody who's basically able-bodied and can sit on a 125cc bike or even a Honda C90 step-through scooter. That adventure of trying to get across the Congo or trying to drive the length of Angola in the four days they set aside for your transit visa or trying to drive the 12,500 miles from London to Vladivostok through Central Asia and all the stars and all that stuff. That's the adventure, and anybody can do it. You don't have to be a square-jawed tough guy with a, um, you know, a load of Patagonia and dual fleece and base-layer Gore-Tex bullshit all over you. It's, the experience is open to anyone. That's why, frankly, I'm all the more heartbroken when, now that we've got the internet, we've got the GPS, we've got the satellite phone, we've got the guidebooks, we've got the this-is-how-you-do-it books, we've got... Dare I say it, films like Modern Girard Child Circuit that prove that a bunch of losers with no idea what they're doing can do it. How heartbreaking it is for me to see people more scared than ever and try to rebrand adventure motorcycling as just dual sporting. Was it last week, the week before? You were over here, you were at the Overland Expo, you were talking about the Tour Tech. How do, how do people react to your message of, you know, you got, you, I'm imagining an army of GS riders coming and listening to you. And you're telling them, get on a 225 and go across the ocean. Well, it's, 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 it's much more simple than that. I uh, am not enough of a fascist to say, right, anybody who owns a GS or the new Triumph Explorer or a, a Honda Cross Tour or whatever the Ducati one's called, you know, I mean, all those massive bikes. I'm not going to say, right, all you people are now on the blacklist and you don't count anymore. What I'm saying is that adventure motorcycling is about actually not what you own, it's about what you do. You've got to get out there. And, and, we've got, and we need to collectively, as motorcyclists, see, motorcyclists used to be cool. That's what breaks my heart. Certainly when I was a kid in the 70s, only outsiders on the whole were motorcyclists. Greasers, hell's angels, shopper guys, all, all sorts of other, you know, they just seemed to be individuals. And of course it was, it was incredibly alluringly magnetic. I was des desperate to be part of that gang. Actually, I didn't want to be in the gang. I just wanted to, 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 to take that step out of the iron cage, the iron box that is the car, and get onto the, you know, get onto the motorcycle. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And it breaks my heart when I see that now everybody could be legitimately, and how can I phrase it, um, this, this, all of the excuses that probably existed about 15 years ago about long-distance adventure motorcycling. All of those excuses have been removed. There's now so many catalogue cases of young, small, weak, uh, uh, little, frail, single women motorcycling around the world. Oh, he's seen a picture of you, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, they, and they haven't, you know, they, they put most men to shame, those ladies. You know, everyone has been everywhere. 
there's no room for it isn't in a guidebook. You could just start, start clicking on, you can Google stuff and, and you'll find 50 blogs from people who've done it before. So now, there's no excuses. So why would somebody not, as a matter of course, if they lived in North America, why would they not, as a matter of course, have already ridden to Buenos Aires by the time they're 35? I mean, that's just obvious. It's like going to a drive-in or getting laid or getting a driving test. It would just be an obvious entry-level starter pack, you know. But incredibly, when I'm, when I'm talking to, in North America, incredibly, I'm, I'm meeting people who, as a badge of honor, will tell me that they haven't left the USA since 9-11. And it's just yeah, unbelievable. And you were the people that put the man on the moon. You were the people that drove wagons across all that prairie that all the Indians chasing you. That you had balls of steel. I said, where are they now? I you're, can't you're, not, you're not supposed to be hanging out in Texas, Austin. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with, with Americans, uh, I don't, when I do my presentation in America, I'm not there to, to tell people off. But I am there to say, come on, folks, you are Americans. You are the toughest, meanest, coolest, most interesting, most well-developed, richest, most powerful country in the world. If you're scared, then that really is ridiculous. Because it's the other people who should be scared. It should be the guy from Honduras that's scared. The guy from Zambia should be scared. The guy from Tajikistan should be scared. Americans shouldn't be scared. You're the real thing. We all look up to you. We all want to be you. We all want to live in you. So you've got to get out there and hit the trail. I feel like a loser. Wow. <laughs> I'm 40 and I haven't been to Buenos Aires. Me, man, hurt my feelings. <laughs> when do you suppose the uh, the message of the uh, of the adventure got kind of mutated? If you kind of accept the fact that the first, which is true, the first adventure motorcycle film in Europe was modern in Europe. Uh, not by design. I never, I never thought. Great, I'm going to invent adventure motorcycling. I'm going to make a film that demonstrates what that is. It just, it just worked out that way. Yeah. You know, we never meant to do, well, meant to do something like big and impressive sort of thing. But it, it, we never ever imagined that us lads on holiday would end up on television, being interviewed, you know, transatlantically, and with me doing presentations across the USA, and you know, Monday, Monday, Monday has become internationally famous. Right. But, which is a bit weird for a home movie. started off very healthily because the whole message was, look, everyone, anyone can do this, and guess what? Look, it's amazing fun, isn't it? Because when you watch those films, it's clear that we had the time of our lives. Yeah. And it cost us almost nothing. It cost us less money than, it would have, than we'd have spent if we'd stayed in London. Backpacking <laughs> is cheaper than living at home. Mm-hmm. Thanks to all the freight and the visas and the flights and the ferries and the, and the food and the gas and everything. You know, apart from that, of course, you're not working. Adventure motorcycling is an incredibly cheap um, luxury to afford yourself. So then, after Montevideo, so something else came along in the in the in the popular. Oh, uh, he's talking I, about the long ways. Well, and uh, and that that cha- uh, completely changed people's perception of it. And of course, they were far far more heavily promoted and well known about than uh, our two little projects have been. I had pushed it the long ways out of my mind because in my head they're just more like they're TV. Mondo is Mondo. The more people you talk to, and of course in my world, most people don't regard that celebrity stuff as fake. They think they're watching real stuff happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's how it comes across. Entertainment is sold as hard-hitting adventure documentary. So it's sold that. And so people don't think, oh, wait a minute, did that really happen? Was that contrived? Is there a five-star game lodge behind the camera? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 just, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's totally changed everything, and it made, and of course, it made it okay. When you've got people that that handsome and successful, and they're kind of cool because they've got all the big fancy bikes, and it's on TV, and it's February Kenobi. That whatever they do, doesn't matter what they do, however well or badly, legitimizes that course of action, that path, that route. The thing that if you were me, what's happened over the last sort of five to eight years? is that people who used to see our, those films, Mother and Joe and Terry Circus, said, wow, that looks great fun, I'd love to do that trip. Thanks um, very much for making the effort to make them. Uh, I'm going to go off and do a trip of my own with some friends. We'd say, fantastic, that's great for you. If you would need any help, let us know. What's happening now is that I'm increasingly and endlessly being referred to as a kind of slightly wacky, out there, loose cannon maverick. Me and my crazy reckless friends did something that no one else should ever attempt to repeat we went around we went around the world on the wrong bikes with the wrong gear etc 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 and we're just endlessly regarded as people who who were you know who kind of working outside of the box and that wasn't true we couldn't have been more babyishly middle class and scared and why, do you, why do you think that's happening oh it's simple in a sense there's no you know I represent I'm an ambassador for what I call DIY motorcycle adventures. You say DIY America? Yep. Yeah, so that's I, all Todd does. Great. Yeah, so I want about DIY motorcycle adventure. And by that I mean do something, don't own something. Yeah, you, can, you, can, you can buy all the stuff you want if you go and do something, that's great. You know, but what, you know, what we're finding is this, it's just adventure motorcycle is, is now becoming this endless acquisition of accessories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody and nobody actually doing anything on them, or they'll just get a Moab for the weekend, and then that's it. The box is ticked. I am an adventure motorcyclist. No, you're fucking not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, aren't you going to Moab for the weekend, Todd? <laughs> I, I love that. I love Moab. I've motorcycled around Moab, and, and and it's fantastic fun. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. But it's America. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say. Um, so if um, I'm a great ambassador of. of DIY motorcycle adventure. I want you to Google Ed March, find his Facebook blog and all that stuff. He's my one of my latest heroes. A guy doing a trip from Southeast Asia back to London on a crappy old uh, C90 Honda on scoop. He see he's got no money, but he's doing something. How heartbreaking it is to see all these people who seem to have endless money. They've got endless equipment. They've got the adventure motorcycle. Oh, well, you bet. They've got a motorcycle with the word adventure in his name. I mean, for heaven's sake, you know. But they're scared to leave their own country. So Ed March, on a stupid little Honda um, scooter, which would be a laughing stock in any kind of cool motorcycle scenario, he's actually an adventure motorcyclist. And these other guys are not. I think it's a shame, you see, because of course there's no money to be made in the DIY encouragement type industry. There isn't an industry. Austin Vince is unprofitable. <laughs> Take note, marketing departments. <laughs> so I, I spend all night saying, yeah, I'm saying to people, get a couple of, um, get a couple of bags uh, and and maybe a couple of water bottles from Tura Tech or something like that. Get a sleeping bag from Cascade Designs and Firma, uh, and then get a little bike and, and then get going. Okay. So in other words, I'm encouraging people to spend, you know, a hundred dollars, but I'm actually encouraging them to let us go around the world or do a huge trip that will change their life. If you open any magazine that's got anything to do with adventure motorcycling, it's packed full of adverts for things that you don't need. And actually, you get all your trip back. You know, you buy a, you buy a colossal twenty thousand dollar bike that weighs five hundred pounds. You're not going to have an adventure on it apart from trying to wonder why on earth you bought it. You know, you're, you're going to leave the first world. You're never going to go above fifty miles an hour. 
So why have you got um, a motorcycle that's designed to cruise at 110? I mean, a child could tell you, this is ridiculous. And yeah, yeah, the Pan American Highway through Guatemala, the last time I was there, yeah, was almost unrideable. I mean, even our 350s were far too overpowered for that road. So there's no money to be made out of saying, hey everyone, just grab a bike and get going. What we want is for everyone to keep buying stuff, or what the industry wants is for everyone to keep buying stuff, everyone to get in on the gimmick, uh, and then and then all of the you know, companies that make stuff um, are going to be well served. Except ironically, they're not well served. You know, we'd be much, much better in both Britain and America if we had ten times as many people riding motorbikes as we do. I'm sure it's the same in America uh, as here. But we, you know, we're still a minority. What we need is not just however many you know, GSs they've sold or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever that number is, if it's for X. We need to be having like 10X people buying 250s and 350s and going off around the world. The industry would be far, far better off if it, if it encouraged that kind of approach rather than just, hey, you middle-aged men with a failed marriage, you know, you've sold the house, you've got some proceeds, spend it on this fantastic bike and actually look adventurous. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're selling a couple of thousand bikes that way, but they should be selling 50,000 bikes to everyone. And guess what? Guess who we're not talking about so far? Women. What woman in the world with the most adventurous spirit that she might possibly have bestowed on her with an exciting and lucky childhood? What woman in the world sees a, a Triumph Explorer 1200 or, or a GS 1200 and thinks, oh yeah, that's me. That's my bike. That's the bike I'm going to ride around the world. This is going to be laughed out of, you know, out of the, out of the showroom, out of the, out of the dealership. You know, if you're a, a small female, this is the bike you're going to ride. Right? It's a 650 GS. You know, um, I don't even know what the small Triumph is. There is one. Small Triumph is like a 900. Isn't it? You know, yeah, it's incredibly, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been one of the biggest motorcycles in the world. <laughs> so to try and pass that off with a little bit of a, a cheeky wink and a, a, a marketing, you know, greasy palm, and hold a photo shoot in a quarry somewhere, and say, yeah, this is a small motorbike, and that is like, no, well, it's not. It's a really massive, overpowered machine. So, I mean, I really, you know, I, don't, I can't tell you, if I had a nickel for every woman that has emailed me saying, oh, I, I want to do a big trip, I've seen your film, or I've heard about Lois Price, or Tiffany Coates, or uh, Horizons Unlimited, um, Ladies on the Loose, you know, these great um, books and films that are designed to encourage women to get out of the kitchen and, and motorcycle around the world. Those women are being turned away in droves by the, by the battalion, by the motorcycle industry, which has just utterly failed to realise that there are, there are literally millions of women out there who love to have a crack at this stuff and they're being told, no, you can't. That's population off the menu. Sally, I could, I, well, don't get me going on the motorcycle industry, but I could, I could transform motorcycle sales if I can get my hands on a bit of the budget that they've got. They to- they're totally, totally over-specialised and focused on the wrong on the wrong thing. Well, adventure and bike it, cycling is like the new chopper fad, so it's all about the bigger and the wider. Exactly. And, the... And, being, and being a man. Being a middle-aged man, that's what it's about. Yeah, middle-aged man. You won't find a 23-year-old or a 20-year-old Running around uh, the BMW GS because they can't afford it. Mm, yeah. So uh, by definition, every single time they open a magazine and someone says this is an adventure motorcycle, because they don't own one, they assume they can't go adventuring. Mm. Great, and that was a fantastic result. Would this be a bad time to mention uh, wheelnerds.com merchandise? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you, what are you Stickers. Stickers. <laughs> 
for your side cases. They, they stick okay. to aluminum very well. Yes. I've got no beef with Suratec or BMW or anything like that. I mean, BMW are fools and stuff because they don't make a bike that is a, a proper around-the-world machine. Hmm. You know, Not even the, the 650s, you, you would... Uh, well, they're so complex and weird. Even the singles? Yeah, singles well, are incredibly well, weird. Yeah, remember, all of the manufacturers have caned themselves because they haven't realized the true adventure motorcycle means, of course, getting into the developing world. And when you're in the developing world, you don't want a motorcycle that means a computer diagnoses it when it inevitably breaks yeah. down. Anybody, I mean, now in Britain, there's people, and I've seen it a lot in America as well, with the 555 uh, motorcycle um, club in Knoxville, Tennessee. You should um, go to their website and check them out. The word five, three times, 555.com. We've got a guy there called Mike Fairman, who um, purposely didn't take a big fancy adventure bike uh, got a two hundred dollar seventies Honda CP three fifty something like that. I don't even know what it was, but some Honda street bike, and he rode it down to Bolivia. Okay, and of course things broke down, and he got them fixed pretty much the same day or the next day. Because the local guy knew exactly what he was dealing with: simple analog seventies eighties engineering. That's adventure motorcycling. Less is more. There's a whole generation of modern motorcycles now that I literally. Even if you paid me, I wouldn't attempt to motorcycle around the world on them because it's just asking for trouble. Less moving part. Electronic wizardry. I mean, that's you know, it's great in England when you've got a dealer, or in you know, in, in Seattle or, or New York, or Los Angeles, when there's a dealer up the road who'll come and collect you and all that stuff. When, when you've invested, you know, six months off work, which is a huge commitment for any normal person, the savings, you might have given up a relationship. You know, you need a you need a bike that when it breaks down, and they all will. Everything breaks down. When it breaks down, you've got to be able to mend it. The myth that that people um, are desperate to believe in is that there is a certain model of a certain bike which will never ever go wrong. And that's <laughs> utter crap. The there is nothing, as you know, from, com from space shuttles. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Space shuttles the most most expensive vehicle in the history of our species, and one of them went wrong, didn't it? Everything will go wrong eventually. So you, what you've got to prepare for is not the, is not trying to preempt the breakdown, but almost embracing it. And when it, when it when it breaks down, when that thing snaps or breaks or just stops working seriously, you can get back on the road as soon as possible. All the other Ural owners and I are going, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, go go Ural, what a machine! Wow. <laughs> but don't say that too much. Todd won't be able to get out of the room. Ural <laughs> <laughs> is the future. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The, that is the most fun I've ever had on a motorcycle. Was riding a Euro from Richmond, Virginia, to back to Seattle. That was, uh, and obviously, that was a holiday, not an adventure. Just utter, utter pleasure. Endless, endless hours of smiling and fun. So, yeah. I guess my my last question for you would be: Are you going to go around the world again? No, not at all. Um, it's the opposite of sex. Once you've done it once, you don't need to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and my job, or my calling, if I'm allowed one, is to encourage other people to take six months of work, borrow a couple of thousand dollars, get a bike, whatever you can get, get whatever bike you want. It's not for me to tell you what bike you're, you should get, but I know what bike I get. <laughs> but if you're low on budget, just do a smaller bike, it will cost you less. Produce sport bike will go anywhere, because the suspension is designed to do that. It's as simple as that. And um, get some uh, uh catalogue. Try and spend less than $8,000 if you can. Uh, get some stuff and get the, get the sleeping bag, get the tent, get the punch repair kit. Uh, maybe get some water bottles and things. Uh, out of that. real nerd stickers. Yeah, real, real nerd stickers. 
So my my mission is to encourage other people to do the tricks that have changed my life, and and to encourage them to ignore the people that that tell them it's going to be difficult or expensive or dangerous. That's all rubbish, and you'll only ever get that from people who haven't done it, or people who are just liars and are trying to make out that they're incredibly brave and cool and they're not. They're just a normal person like everyone else. And then the next layer of my message is. Everybody that I encourage to do a trip, I want them to come back and encourage ten people to do a trip as well. And that's my dream: is that at Tijuana and Nogales and Brownsville, there is a special channel for just adventure motorcyclists piling in and out, north and south, through the American-Mexican border, and that every single American motorcyclist, and then eventually every single adult American, has done a big road trip. Obviously, if you're doing a car, it's not as cool, it's not as interesting, not as much fun, not as enjoyable. But if they have to do it that way, let them do it that way. But that's what we need. I need to get new people out of the country, head south or head west from Seattle, so that across, don't drive across Europe, uh, across Russia to Europe, head east from Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York, land your bikes in France or England, and then drive across Europe and Russia. It's all waiting there for you. Okay? And you Americans need to change your public relations because at the moment your international public relations is being handled by the State Department and the Department of Defense and they're frankly not doing a very good job. Get out there. Get on a PR mission, folks. Yeah, get out there, Americans, because you're so nice. Americans are the nicest people in the world and you're gifted in that you speak English. So you've got this incredible, incredible um, confidence. You're all affable, charming, and lovely. And Who's yeah, he talking about? I'm talking about you, as you won't know. <laughs> oh, you can hear me. <laughs> You've got people burning your flag in the street again and again and again. Not just one. I mean, how on earth did that happen? I tell you how it happened. Because in all my motorcycle travel world, I'm always, always meeting people from other countries coming the other way, going the same way at a gas station in a, you know, in a, in, a, in the centre of a town. It's amazing how you find them at a post office or whatever. And I have never, ever met an American on the road. Not, no, I mean, not outside of America. <laughs> <laughs> that, that might count as cheating. We've got, to change, we've got to change that. You should be out there making friends and winning the world back, winning your nation's reputation back one minute at a time. This has been incredibly cool, Austin. Thank you so much for being on with us. I've had a great time, fellas. I'm sweating with excitement. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we have a blast. Yeah. Todd's just kind of sweaty a... overall. It's, uh... Hello. So what, one of the things he said that I really, really, really liked was the notion of adventure isn't about just going out on dirt. Because we can go out on dirt anyway. Adventure is mm-hmm. about going somewhere out of your comfort zone. Out of it's your element. Out of your element, out of your comfort zone. And then the other part I loved was the being around people who aren't your people. Yeah, that was a really interesting point that you was made a, between adventure and adventure motorcycling. Yeah. Motorcycling takes us to where people are. The people are to put us in other people's cultures in yeah. ways that you just couldn't do with, if you're on a tour bus or in, a, yeah. even in your car or flying in a plane. It, it's a fascinating notion of how to look at it. And I'm thinking of all the, some of the people I really like. There's a guy who rides around. He goes around Russia a lot. He's from uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he says whenever he goes, one of the things he does is he always wears a three-quarter helmet so that people can see his face so he can smile at them to take pictures. Right, 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 right. It was really interesting the way Austin was talking about, you know, we should be ambassadors for yeah. well, us as Americans for yeah. America. You know, we get out there. And, but, you know, I'll be honest. If, if an angry brown person says, you American, I'm going to say, why... Not, not, not so, mate. <laughs> not at all, mate. No, no Americans here. <laughs> no Americans here. God save the queen. <laughs> 
I like it. I like I like the notion of you're out there to be around different people that you're not normally around. For us, we're thinking, hey, it'd be really cool and, and adventurous if we go to Alaska, Bruho Bay. Mm-hmm. But in fairness, we're going through Canada and the States, which yeah, I mean they're a little different. I mean, it, it, for I guess for Austin, he'd be like, that's a way to get your feet wet. Mm-hmm. Now where are you gonna go? Mm. <laughs> I'm like the bed. <laughs> I'm sleepy. Well, one point he does make that I think is a fair point is that, you know, he, he said there are a bunch of guys who are in their 20s and they don't have, they're not married and they don't have kids and that kind of stuff. They you can know? pick up and do it. They can it's pick up easier do it. for them to see it and be yeah. like, yeah, let's just let's just go. I mean, on the one hand, it's an excuse. You, know, you could pick up and leave your family, but, you know, you may have a reason not to. That's that's hard. So, you, know, with, you know, I've got a three-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. It's, that's a pretty daunting prospect to think of. They're like, mm-hmm. okay see you in a couple months so you'll just have to wait until she's a teenager yeah then i could be sick of her and be like that's it i'm oh, leaving so out of here for the next few weeks oh there's food in the fridge bye <laughs> feed yourself use condoms okay so uh our first email comes from matthew i am taking the msf course next week and i am looking for advice on gear and a motorcycle I am a recent college graduate, so price matters. I am looking to commute with the motorcycle, but with the ability to have fun, camping, dirt roads, etc. On the weekends, with my hot college sorority babysitter girlfriend. I don't think he wrote that. No, but you know. I have fallen in love with the Euro, but it is out of my price range and possibly exceeds my mechanical confidence level. It seems to me that three wheels is more stable and has a better visual profile for the giant trucks on the road. I think I am looking for a 250 to 650 cc dual sport style motorcycle. Oh, and for reference, I live in San Antonio, Texas for now. Fiery death, hot summers, nice winters. What do you think? Am I crazy? What gear motorcycle would you recommend I check out? Also, I love the show and I'm starting to catch up from the beginning. Well, to start with, if you're asking us for advice, yeah, you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> for starters, the Ural is not a motorcycle, it's a three-wheeler. I mean, it is technically a motorcycle, but the way it behaves is utterly different from a two-wheeler. We've mentioned that before, but... So the MS Clef isn't going to help you. It's going this. to do nothing for riding a Ural apart from teach you how to shift. Yeah, and where the brake is. Uh, and where the brakes are located. Yeah. Not necessarily how they make the bike behave. By this point, he's already taken the class. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's picked up already from the class that you want to start with a small bike. Yep. Something in the 250 to 650cc dual sport is a great way to go. And any kind of DR. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, any of the DR range. 400s. Yep. Um, I mean, yeah, with the, if you're going to go with a dual sport motorcycle, you have a lot more choice. Mm-hmm. Something small like that in a four-stroke will make you really, really happy because you'll get stupid gas mileage. And used, because you're going to drop it. Yep. And, and you don't want to cry about it. Yeah, exactly. And you should be able to find some used ones. Look out for ones that have been used as serious dirt bikes, because the people who buy those generally just beat the living shit out of them. And then dump them. And then dump them. <laughs> and usually do so for more money than they're worth because they're like, how's all the dirt thingies? Now, you, you want, frankly, one that's been used by some other douchebag as his commuter vehicle, and you want to put a milk crate on the back of it if he doesn't already have one on it. I think the dual sport's absolutely the way to go. Yep. Good for everything. Comfy. You can ride around on it. Easy to work on. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic option. In terms of gear advice, uh, really get the full-face helmet that fits your head. Whatever shape your head is is what's going to determine it. Look at HJCs. Those are pretty reasonably priced. Pretty reasonably priced, and they come in a variety of head shapes. In Texas, you're going to want a mesh jacket. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. With a liner. New Enough's uh, bargain section is very good, and New Enough may actually be fairly local to you in San Antonio. Yeah. Uh, remember, your first bike is not your last bike. Absolutely. So, you know, just go start going through Craigslist, your local classifieds, and find your dual sport. And don't overlook things that aren't dual sports either. Something like a 250 Nighthawk with a milk crate on the back will do everything you're describing here. So Dan writes, finally figured out who Chuck's voice reminds me of. After listening to every episode since day one, I finally realized that Chuck is Tommy Tong's slightly less stoned younger brother. <coughs> What's up, man? You don't sound anything like Tommy Chong to me. No, not at all. Here, you want a Chuck secret? What's that? When I am uncomfortable around people I don't know, mm-hmm. I act outrageously stoned. Really? And I do it really well. <laughs> I don't do the Tommy Chong, hey, man, what... I don't do that. I'm like, like whoa, man. I, I do the stoner that's desperately trying to convince you he's not stoned. Ah, okay. I see what you're going for here. Yeah, I, I, I do that really well. It's, that's uh, worked wonders for me in the past. Because once someone figures out you're stoned, they just want to have as little to do with you as possible. Uh-huh. And they go away. <laughs> and they'll help you get there, wherever it is you're going. I usually go with either the horrible, disgusting tactic to make people go away. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty good at that one. You know, like if you're sitting on a Southwest flight and like it's not totally full, but like some of the seats are going to be double. That's when you like you do like the the picking your nose, but trying not to look like you're picking your nose. Pick, kind of just reach up and like you know act like nothing's going on, and then you kind of every once in a while you go, <coughs> <coughs> you know, something like that. Just keep people out of your seat. Yeah. Scratch your balls a little bit now and again. Yeah. 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 Like that. Yeah. I don't know how you read it. I I gotta go. That or I do the fuck off face, which is also very effective. I need to get by you. <laughs> I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> okay, Chuck, you're starting to make me want you to go away. What What have you learned tonight, Chuck? I'm real hungry. What have you learned, Todd? I learned that real adventure on a motorcycle is more about going where people are. And that's all we have time for this week. Until next week, I'm Todd. And I'm Chuck. Ride safe, everyone. What? What? Do the finish. Uh, oh, yeah. Next week, dude. See ya. If you like this podcast, you can find more like it at wheelnerds.com. This has been a Wheel Nerds production, all rights reserved. Readings from other sources are the property of their respective owners and are used with satirical intent.